Well, we have taken some time to look at Christ's teaching in uh, chapters 11 and 12, and we found them pretty strong, which shouldn't surprise you too much. As a great prophet, in addition to being the Son of God, our Savior, we should expect and anticipate that his message will be similar to the prophet's message that got the prophets into a lot of trouble. And when we look back, we think usually of Old Testament people. But even if you think of John the Baptist and the trouble he got into by prophesying, not only prophesying in terms of of uh, the nation's sin, but specifically of leadership's sin. This got Jeremiah into trouble, and, and as well as many of the prophets, where they would speak specifically of the king's sin, or perhaps uh, the religious leadership's sin, or the prince's sin, or the, even sometimes the priest's sin. Uh, and when you look at that, we realize, well, no wonder they got into trouble. Look what they were yapping at, if you will, barking at. Uh, and Christ here is going has done very similarly, similarly uh, in speaking against the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the, the priests, the, the teachers of the law. He has spoken very strongly with regard to the... Um, uh, false belief systems that are out there and the, and the pretenders that are even amongst his own disciples. And these are potent. And we might look at those and say, wow, this is um, not what we expect. We think of Jesus as this gentle person. But in fact, he spoke very, very strongly. And so we come to um, chapter 13. And for the second time now, Christ is going to be interrupted He's going to be interrupted by someone in the crowd. Uh, the first time, if you recall, someone came to him and says, I want you to be a judge between me and my brother about our inheritance. And Christ takes that and very quickly turns it and communicates um, that uh, that wasn't his purpose. And in fact, this individual has revealed where his uh, love is. And his love is on this earth and the things of this earth and that he should be seeking the kingdom of God. We come now to really a second interruption, if you will. And we're not sure exactly when chapter 13 uh, occurs, when the uh, bearers of this interruption have arrived. Uh, some say they've been listening the whole time. Some would contend that they only came right at this moment. Um, others, which I would probably be party to, um, is that they came in the midst of Christ's teaching, maybe even just with the last few paragraphs of chapter 12, that, that they came and heard this part and then thought they would interject a little something uh, that might go along with what Christ was teaching. And so we find this interjection of some that were present uh, who told Jesus about the Galileans who blood, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And so they come with, with hot uh, news that's been uh, that, that maybe people in that region haven't heard about. Um, he, they've come with this uh, recent event that's very traumatic. Not unusual, just traumatic. In fact, we have record of Pilate doing this on several occasions. Um, he, he was pretty... Uh, we often only know Pilate through the events at the Passion Week, which are coming up on us very quickly, in, uh, chronologically at least in Luke, and maybe not textually in Luke, but chronologically coming up very quickly for us. And so we find that uh, all we know about is Pilate, and we tend to think of him as this maybe indecisive guy who wants to please, but but uh, 
but then he also has some compassion towards Christ and washes his hands of it. And he kind of wants justice, doesn't really know, is kind of a searcher for truth, um, has that question, what is truth? And he's kind of a confused, lost person. Um, and we, we kind of have him almost as a spiritual neutral position, I think, in our minds. That, But this is not really the pilot that history knew. Uh, he was a very strong-handed individual. Um, and in fact, uh, the evidence is that the only reason he was as non-aggressive as he was with Christ was probably due to um, some of the other things going on at the time, particularly within his own household. Um, but we find him uh, seeing uh, insurrection everywhere. And he was very proactive in trying to crush it at its very root very early on. And, of course, one of the places in terms of uh, Israel where insurrection and rebellion seemed to always kind of get stirred up was around the temple. And so uh, we have Fortress Antonio, which is right there, uh, overseeing really the whole temple mount being built just uh, to the north and um west of the of the temple mount there uh fortress antonio which wasn't really built for a roman fortress it was really built for other purposes but the romans took it over because of the ability they had to really see what was going on in the temple mount and they could rush in at any time and Pilate did that occasionally uh and even when we get in the book of acts we see that done as well which saved paul from being killed really and so when we find um this uh Overlook, Pilate had done this, and so news was starting to to uh, uh, be spread throughout the land. And here come some individuals. When did they arrive? Uh, they likely would have arrived maybe before verse 54. How far before verse 54? I don't know. Maybe some people put it even earlier, um, but I think certainly uh, they may have heard him speak the words of chapter 12, verse 54, and following where he talks about the times, of recognizing the times, that, that there are certain events occurring, and those events you should be alerted to, and with that alertness, you should be seeking out the kingdom of God and its righteousness, because you are aware. And, and it's foolishness for you to think that um, God's not going to hold you accountable for not discerning what's going on in your time. And in fact, he says, you know, you can judge the weather, you can judge uh, crops. You can judge these kinds of things. But you don't seem to be able to judge the times you're living in. And this is going to be something you'll be held accountable for. And, and he says that. He says, um, you're going to, uh, uh, well, he calls them hypocrites for not being able to do that. And so you're going to be held accountable for not being able to discern the times. Well, here comes these individuals. And here Jesus talking about discerning the times and about being recognized signs of the times, if you will. Um, and uh, they haven't heard the whole argument necessarily. I don't know that they are. They may have heard some of what he said about the divisions that are going to be going on. But they interject this current event into the message of Christ. And I don't know what they expected his response to be or if they uh, thought, well, this will be a good example for him to add to his message, if you will, or maybe they just wanted to hear how he would respond to this. Is this the kind of signs that you're talking about? And of course it wasn't. It had really little to do with the signs that he was referring to. 
the signs he was referring to was the signs that were accomplished in his presence, where you had dead raised to life, where you had blind men who could see, where you had the word of God preached, where you had demons cast out, all these things, not only by him, but by his disciples who went out two by two. And we had all this testimony throughout all of Israel, and we had multitudes gathered, and they're hearing the word of truth, and, and, they're, and they're being blessed by it. And you see this, this great working of God in their midst that really stretches all the way back to the angelic visitation, the prophetic visitation at his birth, uh, and now with the visitations, if you will, in his ministry life. And so he's referring, I believe, to most all of that, of recognizing this time, that this is a time of decision, and that there are there's some things you need to be take you need to take care of in your life before it's too late. And we talked about that last week, that we are on the road to judgment. That when Christ has come, yes, He's come as the Savior of men, but He has equally come as the Judge of all men. And so all of us are hurtling headlong into this time of judgment. All of us. Both Christians and non-Christians alike. And so the question is, how, what then are we going to do? And He ended His, His, before this interruption, He ended His, His description by saying, listen, if you're on your way to the judgment and the person walking along beside you is the one you have wronged, the one who has a case against you, the victim of your evil is there with you. Your adversary is walking with you to the judge. You have an opportunity, and that opportunity can't be wasted. You have an opportunity to talk to your adversary and settle things before you get to the judgment seat. Because if you get to that Bema seat, that judge isn't going to be talked to. Because there your adversary will lay out the evidence against you and the judgment against you, you're going to have to pay it all. Be sure of that, he says at the end. And so if you're on your way there, settle the matter before you get there. A powerful presentation of the gospel. Settle things before you get to the judgment because it's coming. And right now, you have Christ here who is available. You have the Holy Spirit alongside, coming alongside and willing to convict you and say, uh, and you have an opportunity to humble yourself to your adversary and settle things, for you are the guilty party. Well, here come these men, having heard this, at least, with all probability, and gives him this very concerning news. Is this the kind of thing you're talking about? Is this the kind of judgment you're referring to? Is this the kind of signs we should be looking for? Is this the kind of division that you're referencing? Is it us against the Romans? Is there something... Are, are evil Israelites being punished right now? Well, what is it? And so they're offering this up as, as an evidence... Maybe to substantiate, maybe to see how, if this is what he's talking about as an example. And Christ takes their example, takes their breaking news, if you will, and he, and he turns it right back on them. The, the evidence here from Christ's response is that he looked at what they were saying and were thinking they were self-justifying at some point. They were using this account, well, you know, it's a good thing we're not in Jerusalem because... This is what happened there. If we were in the temple today, we may have been slaughtered, those Galileans that were slaughtered there. Or, um, and again, the, he does another example that he already was familiar with of the tower that fell under construction and, and killed all these 
innocent, quote-unquote, people. But in their minds, this is something, a judgment of God. Is this the judgment you're referring to? And therefore, this judgment is falling on others, and we are escaping it because we're here with you. So there's a little self-justification here. Oh, you mean them. If you're talking about people racing towards a judgment, you must be talking about those kind of people over there. You know, those rebellious sort that got slaughtered by Pilate on the Temple Mount. Or those people that must have had secret sin and that's why the tower fell on them over there in Jerusalem. You must be meaning those other people. Isn't that typical of all of us? When we hear a powerful message about judgment, we are pretty sure it doesn't refer to me. It's those other people. Pastor's preaching to those other people on the podcast. He's not really preaching to any of us in this room. He's preaching to the to the to that nebulous, unidentified crowd out there on the internet. Wrong. Christ here has to redirect their attention, and he does it very forcefully. Look at it, and then he's going to seal the deal with a parable that is very powerful. We're going to spend some time there. Chapter 13, verse 2. Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans are worse sinners than all other Galileans? Because they suffered such things? I tell you no. And there is such an emphatic there. You almost have to yell this. I tell you no! He's talking to a multitude, so I'm sure he was yelling at this point anyway. And so he says, no way, no way were they worse sinners than all the rest of the Galileans. Remember who his main followers were. This is... Jesus followed by a bunch of Galilean fishermen and others who were collected from around the Sea of Galilee predominantly. And so he's got a bunch of Galileans and it's easy for them to say, well, you know, it's those ones and not us. Jesus is referring to no. He says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Emphatically, all of you, plural. All of you here will likewise perish because you also are heading fast, quickly, moving very... Throughout your life, you're just moving closer and closer and closer to judgment. Those people's judgment came before they thought, didn't it? Oh, it came suddenly on them. You're just going around your life. You think, oh, you know, I'm only 20. I've got 40, 50 years before I have to worry about the judgment of God. And boom, a tower falls on you. Your judgment has come. Now you have to answer before God. Time is gone. Decision-making is over. You're in there and you're being the hypocrite and you're, you're doing all the right things for all the right reasons. You got rebellion in your heart, but you're on the temple mount. You brought sacrifices of some degree or another and God comes, or the military, the, the government comes down on you and spills your blood and you're right there. And by the way, the idea of spilt blood, of human blood mixing with sacrificial blood was just abhorrent. It, it, it spoiled not just the sacrifice, but the very land there and it would have to be reconsecrated and, and several times Pilate did this and every time they basically had to interrupt all sacrifices had to repurify the entire temple mount every time Romans came on it they had to do this let alone spilling blood and they had to clean it all up and it like you know here they are with this attention to all this religious detail and yet they were quickly introduced to judgment not just Pilate's judgment, but by the judgment of God. And Christ, Jesus says, if you think that somehow you've got a, a pass on this, I'm telling you, you don't. 
you are all heading towards judgment. At any time, you could be facing the judge, capital J, God, the Holy, Holy, Holy One. And so he says that you're going to perish just as much as they're going to perish at any time, unless you repent. If you don't repent, if you don't turn from your religious hypocrisy, people in the Temple Mount, or from your just disregard for spiritual matters, those walking around the tower, you're going to face a judgment that will be severe. For the one who is your judge will be the Holy One who also said, you know, I sacrificed my son for your salvation and you disregarded it. How much deeper your judgment. And so he uses these two examples to remind us that the message, this kind of message of chapter 11, the woes on the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and the religious leadership of Israel, these woes and all of this throughout chapter 12 where we talk about what real hypocrisy is, when we talk about real covetousness is, when we talk about real faithlessness is, when we talk about these, these illustrations by Christ and these, these sins that Christ is pointing to, do not, do not get caught in the arrogant and dangerous place of thinking this refers to someone else. For God calls us here, Jesus Christ, to say, I must take these things to my heart. I must guard my heart, my life from this. I must respond by faith and recognize that in my life there are, to some degree, levels of hypocrisy of doing all these religious activity for all the wrong reasons. Doing everything right and yet being wrong in my heart that every one of us must struggle, must recognize this enemy called covetousness, must recognize how it's presented to us repeatedly in our culture, in our heart, in our midst, and recognize that we often fall to it. That we must recognize that more often than not, we are more like the two servants of God who are going to get stripes at the judgment, who's going to get beatings at the judgment, rather than the one who's going to be called well done, good and faithful servant. You see, we always tend to put ourselves in that category. We always tend to say this teaching against sin is for other people who are really bad sinners. And it's not. Christ says, unless you all repent, turn from sin to God, your judgment will come. Not just for unbelievers, but for Christians too. Your judgment will come. And again, we rehearse that. And we see that two-thirds of the servants of God described by Christ in chapter 12 undergo judgment. There's a fire burning. There are stripes to be laid on the backs of those who knew God's word and didn't obey it and those who chose to be ignorant of God's word by not listening to it. We find them 
at the judgment seat of Christ, enduring judgment, not reward. So Christ puts very quickly to silence those who would want to point the finger at others and say, by judgment, you mean them. He says, no, it's you. It's you. You all must repent. In that crowd of you all were people whom he had cast demons out of. Within that crowd of you all were people who he had healed. Within that crowd, that great multitude of you all were his disciples. Within that crowd of you all were the religious leaders of their day. The Pharisees were there still, I'm certain. Within that crowd of you all is you all. We're there as well. It's not just that crowd that had to hear this, but all mankind has to hear this, that unless we repent, death is Eternal death is our future. This is the message that Jesus Christ emphatically placed upon them with breaking news. Now, I'm going to bring this into the modern world. Okay? Breaking news comes. There's a great disaster somewhere on the globe, and there seems to always be one somewhere happening or getting ready to happen or about or just gotten over with. And it's phenomenal to watch the Christian community do kind of exactly what we just see here. Oh, why did New Orleans get flooded by that hurricane? Well, it was probably because a whole bunch of homosexuals were having a convention there, right? They're worse sinners than us, that's why. Why did Haiti have an earthquake that collapsed its capital city? Well, it's the voodoo. They're worse sinners than us, of course. That's why it happened to them. Why did a tsunami wipe out tens of thousands, oh, hundreds of thousands in Indonesia? Well, it's they're just worse sinners than us. Yeah. The exact thing that Christ taught against here in this passage is exactly what we find the Christian community caught up in. Disasters happen to these people because they're worse sinners than us. Nonsense. Unless everyone repents, we all have the same judgment coming. We will all perish. Just as surely, just because they perished at that time doesn't mean that we are somehow blessed that we didn't die then. And in that same way. Are we that sure that not a single Christian died in any of those? Were they worse Christians than us? Because a building collapsed on them? And this one seems to be holding up so far? So far. I know who built it, so you guys are taking great pains to be in this house. Listen, we are guilty of the very thing that Christ was preaching against there. The Christian community. Listen to them. Do you hear them on the radio and on TV sitting there talking about the sin of this place and the sin of that place and that's why God's judging them and God's judging them? And why aren't they saying this? 
We are as bad as any sinners on the planet. We are as deserving as any natural disaster that could possibly strike us with the biggest death toll that could ever be imagined. We are guilty enough to deserve that. We must all repent. Or we will all perish likewise in disastrous ways. Be sure of it. Be sure of it. And so, no, you will not find me, hopefully, if you ever do catch me, just slap me, okay? Find me getting into this kind of... Pastor Leeson just smiled there. Hey, i got to write that down in my Bible, too. Um, of this, that happened because ultimately all tragic events here happen because of sin. Have a seat. And so when we understand that, when we comprehend that, that all things happen because of sin, all natural disasters that we understand are part in it. Our place in that is not I'm the innocent one, I get to watch all this happen and condemn them, but rather, I'm a guilty one. And this tragedy that befell them will befall us all one day. Unless I repent. And ultimately, for the one who doesn't know God as Savior, that repentance is, comes in the form of accepting Christ as their Savior and Lord. But I want you understand that repentance should be a regular part of the Christian life. But the fact is, every time we get caught into some of the things Christ described in chapter 12, we need to repent and, and shake ourselves and bring us back to who we are in Christ and what we are meant to live like. Let's go to verse 6. He's going to press the point with a parable. He says, he also spoke his parable, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none, cut it down. Why does it spoil the ground? Now, most commentators will say, well, he came on the third year because fig trees don't start producing till the third year. Um, I would think that the guy that planted the fig tree knew that. He has come for three years expecting fruit, which means that the fig tree is now how old? I don't think he came the first year expecting something that shouldn't be there. I would contend the fig tree is now six years old and it's time for some evidence of fruitfulness. He wouldn't have come year one when when it's immature and there isn't going to be any fruit and gotten too upset about it. He wouldn't have come on year two and expected to see it. He just he was, he's, he's a knowledgeable person here. He came year three expecting fruit. He came, oh, that would make it five years old. Sorry, I didn't do my math very well. Came year three, came year four, came year five, no fruit for three years. Three years there should have been fruit on that tree. And he says, cut it down. It's wasting my soul. It's using it up. It's spoiling it. Cut it down. 
We'll do something else with the soil. It's drawing nutrients from the ground and it's producing nothing. And his gardener, I would take it, the keeper of his vineyard, says, well, sir, let's give it one more year. I'll put a little extra effort, energy on it. You see, the keeper of the vineyard didn't say, um, well, you know, it's only its third year, and you know, sometimes it takes another year. doesn't give an excuse, does it? The keeper of the vineyard agrees with the assessment of the owner. The assessment was accurate. It should have been producing fruit all three of these past years. You are correct, owner. It has been using up the soil. It's been wasting it. It's been drawing and drawing and drawing and producing no fruit to your glory. Let's give it one more year. And I'll put extra attention to it. Look at the extra attention that he's going to put to this tree. He says, I'm going to dig around it and I'm going to fertilize it. I'm going to work the soil around it. I'm going to, I'm sure there's going to be some pruning going on too, but he says, I'm going to work the soil around it. I'm going to put some extra fertilizer. We'll put some extra energy and effort into it. And if that doesn't do it, cut it down. Now, Who's the owner of the vineyard? The owner of the vineyard in this passage is God. Who's the keeper of the vineyard? The keeper of the vineyard is also God. One's the Father. The other's the Son. And God comes and says, Listen, I placed a I've placed this in a very precious place with good soil. How do we know it's good soil? Because it's in the midst of a vineyard. There are certain plants you can't plant in a vineyard. It's against the law in in Israel to plant certain plants in a vineyard. But figs were one of the ones that were allowed to be planted within a vineyard. So this plot of land was already productive. It was good soil because the vineyard was there. And it was all producing You see, God planted the tree, and the tree represents you, in good soil. Not often a desert place where it's all sand and you can't do a thing with it. No matter how much water you pour on it, it's going to die. I'm convinced of that. One of our trees blew over. It's just dead, 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 dead. So, no, he put you in a vineyard that was already producing grapes and very productive soil, good soil, and... He places you in this wonderful place. You have every opportunity to grow. You are living. You are thriving to a degree. You are just not putting anything out. Why? Because you're spending all the nutrients on yourself. Oh, look how strong my boughs are. Look how strong my trunk is. Look at how pretty leaves I have. God isn't impressed by any of those. He wants fruit. That's why he planted you. It was not to look pretty, not to look strong, but to be productive to his glory. And this is kind of going to shake you a little bit. Anything less 
is a waste of God's grace in your life. If we're sitting here absorbing the nutrients of God's Word, getting great teaching, getting uh, great singing, getting... um, Bible studies and, and reading and, and memorizing Scripture and we're getting all this input and we're just gathering, gathering, gathering and there's no fruit. You are wasting the grace of God. And let me tell you something. That's something to be judged for. Guaranteed. So here you are in good soil. Here you are planted with, with an expectation. You've been given your time. And God has been extraordinarily patient. His he has waited for the maturity point to come. I am certain of that. He didn't come year one and year two and then your third year say, oh, that's enough. He knows figs. He knows you. He understands the necessity of maturity. If the expectation is now, you have gotten enough nutrients, you are strong enough, you are mature enough, it's time to produce fruit. But even then, he was patient with you. And he waited not one year, not two years, but three years and said, listen, you are well past the season. You're, you're well beyond where you should have been producing some fruit. What are you doing with all the nutrients you're drawing out of my soil? What are you doing with my grace and my mercy? What are you doing with that truth that you've been absorbing and absorbing and absorbing? What are you doing with it? Essentially becomes the question. What are you doing with it? Because to do anything less than serve God with it is to sin against the grace of God. You see, sin isn't just doing things you're not supposed to. The most heinous sin of the Christian is not doing what we're supposed to. Do you remember chapter 12? That servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself to do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. That's verse 47. I just read to you. You see, the judgment for a Christian is not so much about that we do things that we're not supposed to do. There is some of that. But the real judgment that Christians should be extraordinarily concerned about is that I haven't done what I've been called to do, what I've been planted to do, what I've been groomed to do, what I've been nourished to do. I'm not doing it. I'm doing nothing with the grace of God. This is the whole account of the parable of the talents. God gives you something. His expectation is you're going to work it to His glory and produce something more. Well, patiently, God's waited five years, at least six maybe, five, six years. The last three, he's expected fruit. It's right to expect it. He knows what kind of soil you've been put in. He knows what a fig tree's capable of. He knows. And so, he has concluded that there's something wrong, not with the soil, There's something wrong, not with the vineyard, not with the owner. He doesn't blame the keeper of the vineyard, does he? He looks at that and says, bad tree. Bad tree. And the keeper of the vineyard says, just a little longer. One more year. I'll put a little extra effort and energy into it. Now, let's connect this to what Jesus just taught. 
you think you're better than the sinners who got punished at such and such event. And God's walking through his vineyard and comes upon you. What does he look at and say? Cut it down. The keeper of the vineyard says, well, let's give him another year. Can you imagine what the fig tree thought? Oh, God's blessing me extra this year. I'm getting fertilized. My soil's getting worked up. He must really like the way I'm doing things. I think I'll just sprout more branches and more leaves. Because God likes what I'm doing here. Look. Look what he's doing. He's giving me all this extra attention. Why? I just touch things and they turn to gold. Or at least green leaves. Here I am. God must love me so much. I must be exactly what he wants me to be. Because look all the attention he's given me. All the while, what is happening? Click. 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 Your time's running out. Because if you don't get it, that your purpose isn't to look pretty, but to do some work for the kingdom of God, you're going to be cut down and burned up. But there's the fig tree. Oh, God's just loving me extra. Look, look around. I mean, he could just, look, the vines, look, is he doing this for you? No, look what he's doing for me. I must be doing everything right. And don't we think that? Come on. Don't we think that? Don't we look out over, and I know this because I go to every pastor's, I don't go to any more pastor's fellowships, but I go to go to pastor's fellowships, and there they are. Oh, so-and-so, oh, God's just blessing him upside down and backwards because why? Well, they had to build five buildings to keep up with everything, and then they have triple services, every, and, and, and on and on it goes, and it's like, hello? Could it be? God's got the extra work going on there because his time's almost up. Either do something for me or you're dead. You might not have died now, but death is coming. What are you measuring? You are betting on the patience of God. That's what you're doing. For a Christian to keep walking along his Christian life and doing nothing for the Master and doing all for myself, you are betting on how patient God is. And I want to tell you something. There is an end to it. There is an end to it. And Christ says, you think you've, because you avoided this catastrophe or that disaster, that somehow you're doing great. But the fact is, you might be on the block. And only the grace of God says, we'll give you a little extra attention for another year. And if there's still no fruit, you're gone. You're gone. Why? Because what he's saying is reasonable. First of all, the owner of the vineyard was reasonable. He gave you three years to produce something. Three years that should have been productive. He's given you three opportunities that you should have done something for him. With all that you have been given, all that grace and all that mercy, all that truth, all that, all that wonderful stuff that we receive from God, we gotta have something to show for it. Besides just look at me. Something to give. Something to, to, to show that we have proof. Then, so there's a reasonableness to saying, let's just cut it off now. But there's also a reasonableness to the keeper of the vineyard saying, one more year. 
We're going to give it a little extra attention. And boy, this generation had a little extra attention, didn't they? I mean, they got to watch miracles happen. They heard Jesus teaching. They were going to, they, they had all of this. They, demons were running crazy and pigs were getting drowned and, and there was all kinds of stuff happening. And they're like, boy, aren't we great? We get to watch all this. Oh, it's just going to judge you because in a few days you're going to say crucify him. In a few days, you're going to run off and abandon him. This one that you said, let's make him king. You're going to say, crucify him. You're going to run off and leave him. See, the unfruitful Christian is an oxymoron. Or should be. There's no Nothing happening in your life to the glory of God, serving Him, not yourself. Then I fear to say that the only reason you're walking and not underground right now in a grave is because the keeper of the vineyard said one more year. I'll give you one more year. I'll give you one more chance. I'll make sure that you're taught well. I'll make sure that you, the Holy Spirit is active in your life. I'll make sure the events around you um, enable you to produce fruit. I'll do everything that I need to do. We will do an extra. We'll even do extra for you. But if you don't produce something at the end of that, you're gone. If after this season, hypocrisy is still defines you because you're all about the leaves and the trees and not about the fruit, I'll cut you down and burn you up. I got better use for this soil than that. God has placed you in good soil here. He's given you His Word. He's given you His Spirit. His expectation is He's going to see some fruit. The way John describes this is that if we abide in Him and His Word abides in us, what's going to happen? We're going to bear much fruit. Fruit that remains. Lasting fruit. This is what God expects. And this is what the Son is striving to accomplish in us, and if it is not capable of being accomplished, it is not poor soil, it is not a poor gardener, it is bad tree. Bad tree. Cut it down. I'm convinced that this is what Galatians refers to. I'm convinced this is what Hebrews talks about. I'm convinced this is what James refers to over and over again when they say, Where is the proof? Where is the steadfastness? Where is the, where is the endurance? Where is it? Why are you so easily persuaded of, the, of lies? Why are you so quick to disregard the one who has delivered you from your sin? But there's a little if clause here. That is the reason I'm preaching this morning. Because if this if clause weren't here, I'd quit 
I would have quit a long time ago. The if clauses in verse 9. If it bears fruit, well. You know what? Even an unfruitful Christian can become fruitful. And if I didn't believe that was possible, I couldn't stand here and preach. Ever. A little extra attention. And I've done that. I, 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 I sympathize with God, I think, on, on this account. So that sometimes you see someone and you see no fruit in the Christian life. And you give them extra attention and try to, to work that up and, and, and give them what they need to, to bring forth the, the spiritual fruit that should be in their life, to bring forth the, the testimony that should be. The, and, um, and some will respond to that and fruitfulness will occur in their life. And we, we say, well, glory to God. Well, that's good. That, that's great. Okay. Um, I don't know why we wasted those three years past, but, but now it's fruitful. So praise God and, and we're just going to continue on. And therein is the hope of this message. Is that, Christian, if you've been here and you have been fruitless in your life, you have, not, you have nothing to show for before God. Not, not leaves. And, and look how much I know about God. Look how many Bible verses I can memorize, I can quote. Um, let me tell you the theological points that I can argue. Um, no, I'm not talking about any of those leaves. I'm talking about real fruit. What is the fruit? Well, we find the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. We find the fruit of righteousness. We find the fruit of the, of the gospel. Um, there, there should be evidence on multiple levels. And if that's not there, I want to tell you something. It should be there and it can be there. Because God's put all that's necessary in you to make it there. You have the Holy Spirit. You have its truth. You have a a congregation of believers around about you, love you, want you to to be fruitful um, and multiply, not just physically. Um, You guys all know I want you to do that. But spiritually, to be fruitful and multiply. It can be done. What will it require of you? To repent. To repent of fruitlessness. Let me say that again. For the Christian, God's call here is to repent of fruitlessness. Of absorbing all of these spiritual nutrients out of the wonderful garden God has planted you in here and to have nothing to serve your Savior with is sin and must be repented of. It isn't God's fault that you're fruitless. It isn't the soil's fault that you're fruitless. And that soil, I believe, refers to the Word of God. You have it available in your own language. It's taught regularly here in this church. It abounds in our environment, really, if you really want it. Well, I know there's dangers out there too, but it's there. It's out there. It's not the soil's fault. It's the tree. It's you. What fruit do you have to God's glory in your life? If it's not there, repent or you will perish. The Corinthian church found this out. 
And Paul admonished them. Listen, there's no fruit of righteousness in your midst. If you're glorying in sin, yeah, people are going to die for that. Don't think just because you've avoided it so far that you're not on the docket. I don't know if this might be the last year. I don't know if this is the year that Christ first came, God first came to look for fruit in your life, or if it's the last year of him giving you extra attention. I don't know. Neither do you. Do you really want to wager against the patience of God of when it's going to run out? You really want to wager against cutting, being cut down and burned versus bearing fruit and God saying, well, live on. See, the measure between them is fruitfulness. And the means to it is repentance. The means to fruitfulness in your Christian life is to repent of all that brings unfruitfulness fact is, I'm convinced that over well over 90% of our church could easily qualify as a servant who knows his master's will. For I am certain it has been taught to you, whether you've listened or not. It has been taught here, but you haven't prepared yourself to do according to it. And you can point the finger at others and say, ah, there were sinners than me, but you're not called upon to compare yourself laterally to your peers, you're called upon to compare what is the expectation of God for you? What does He expect from you? That's what you are being measured against. And so as Christ called them, we must call one another to repentance that we might be fruitful lest we become useless to the kingdom of heaven. In that condition, the word there for using up the ground is really to spoil it. You're spoiling or wasting. You're spoiling what God's graced you with. And I don't know if there's anything worse on the planet than that. Yeah, I said that. We talk about what are the big sins. Oh, we always want to talk about murder and Adultery and things like that. Um, we don't usually get down to our speech, but God says among the seven things that he hates, two of them are with your tongue. But spoiling the grace of God. Spoiling the goodness of God. Is sin. I want to close with this verse in Romans. We've had our young people memorizing it. Chapter 2, verse 4. The fig tree was in a predicament and didn't even know it. And perhaps we are in this predicament today. Chapter 2, verse 4, Romans says... Chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? 
God has graced you by being in this place today to hear God's word. He has been good to you and He has been forbearing. He has been long-suffering. He's put up with your unfruitfulness. And now do you despise Him for calling you to repentance today? If so, verse 5 describes you. In accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Judgment waits you. Your stubbornness, your hardness, your unrepentantness causes you to despise God's goodness. This message isn't about meanness. I'm not trying to be mean to you today. I'm trying to save your life. Jesus Christ wasn't being mean to the people he was talking to. He was trying to save their lives. Because the alternative to this is perishing. Repent or perish. See, perishing is what you're already leaning towards. Repent or you will all likewise perish. This is the goodness of God that calls you to this. Don't despise it. Respond to it by faith. Believe it. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and thank you for a powerful response. To disaster in your day. Oh Lord, I wish that such responses were commonplace among your people during disasters of this day. Lord help us this morning have hearts of repentance. To recognize fruitlessness in our lives when it's there. To not be deceived by vain things like leaves and twigs and trunks. Recognize that you want more. Desire that which can be given. That which serves you, not just serves ourselves. Or may we be humbled today before your grace and goodness and mercy toward us that you have given us this hour yet again to repent or perish. Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.